and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia and this is my co-host Morgan. Hello. So last week we talked about Batman v Superman, which we both found fascinating but hated because it was terrible, um, but terrible in a very interesting way. This week we're going to take a very different turn, which is the films of Richard Linklater, specifically um, the new movie Everybody Wants Some and uh, Dazed and Confused, which is like his classic cult movie that lots of people have loved for like 20 years. Um, the good news is we do not have to give any spoiler warnings here. Most people, I'm sure, who are listening have not seen Everybody Wants Some yet because it's only just come out in the US. And um, basically both films are structured in a way that makes them impossible to spoil because they're just about people hanging out. Um, so I personally have not actually seen Everybody Wants Some yet, uh, but Morgan has, and I believe she has some insight. I'm just going to hand over to her to begin with. Morgan, tell us about Everybody Wants Some, a film where Tyler Hecklin from Teen Wolf is a baseball bro. <laughs> and so many other people are baseball bros as well, which I believe was an act of method casting. The the actors all seem to be quite broish, which is very enjoyable. Um, yeah, I was really excited for this film. I love Richard Linklater. I love uh, his before movies with uh, Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy and Boyhood, which came out in 2014, is one of my favorite films of the decade so far it's just amazing uh and it was announced i think before the oscars even that year that his next movie was going to be a movie about college baseball players hanging out which was quite a departure but he has a history of making sort of artsy indie films and also more mainstream stuff including school of rock which is probably the film that the most people listening to this have seen which yeah, i saw like when when yeah. we were about to like when we decided to have this episode you know morgan is a bit more of a kind of art film buff than i am and i was like have i seen a film by richard linklater and i was like yes i have I've seen School of Rock, and I've also <laughs> seen the movie A Scanner Darkly, which has Keanu Reeves in it and is sci-fi. So he's, you know, he runs the gamut. Yeah, I saw School of Rock in the theater when I was around 13, I think, and only found out many years later that he had made it as well as Before Sunrise, which really blew my mind. But uh, Everybody Wants Some uh, was described as kind of a spiritual sequel to both Boyhood and Dazed and Confused, which was why we decided to pair it with Dazed and Confused, um, which was something that more of you would have been able to watch if you wanted to catch up. And also, you know, Gav could watch because uh, Everybody Wants Some is not out in the UK yet. Um, Boyhood ends right as the boy of the title is going off to college and Everybody Wants Some begins right as the main character, Jake, is arriving at college. He is a uh, baseball player he's a pitcher and he's living he's gonna live in this sort of house full of baseball players and that is basically the plot of the film <laughs> he arrives some of them are more welcoming than others but pretty soon everyone's just getting along and their quest throughout the movie is to sleep with girls. That's really everything that's sort of driving them. The quest to sleep with girls and their competition with each other, which as a couple of them are sort of discussing at one point, is what happens when you put a bunch of really highly competitive athletes all in a house together is that they wind up just intensely competing with each other. So there's a scene in which Tyler Hecklin of Teen Wolf fame and uh, the main character are playing ping pong and Tyler Hecklin, who's playing uh, a character who's sort of considered the best athlete on the team who might actually have a chance of becoming a pro baseball player loses. And he just goes into a total rage. Like he can't handle it. 
because he takes winning so seriously, even at something that's stupid enough as, you know, a ping pong uh, match. But like, that's honestly as much as I can say about the plot of this movie. Nothing happens. There's no conflict. It's like two hours of dudes hanging out. They drink a lot. They smoke some pot. There's like one scene in which they actually play baseball. And, <laughs> like seriously, that's it. They they only play baseball in one scene, and it's not a game. They're just kind of practicing and fooling around. And otherwise, they just go to various sort of like musical venues to try to pick up girls. They go to a disco bar. They go to a country bar. They go to a punk concert, which is very funny. And that makes it sound like a movie that would be really gross or potentially a movie that women would not want to watch. Um, And it is a very kind of straight man film, I think. It's basically like 20 straight white men and one black guy. And yet I could distinguish between all of those men. They're all very distinct characters. And there's just this sort of permeating aura of like chillness. Like They're all very pleasant. They're all having such a good time. They're not judgmental. They just, they're, they're just nice people. Before we started recording, you kind of compared this to an interesting movie, which was Magic Mike XXL. Yes. And I can really see where you're coming from because without having a scene, everybody wants some. They've definitely both got like this soft bro thing where it's very much like about male bonding and male friendship and very chill, like bro-ish dudes but it's not full of toxic masculinity or no homo panic. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think the important distinction is that I think Magic Mike XXL is a more interesting movie because that for me is an explicitly sort of political and feminist film hiding in a movie about strippers. Um, And that's all about men sort of explicitly seeking to please women. And the women in that film, even if most of them aren't really characters, are definitely subjects. They have a point of view. Um, A lot of them have interesting scenes where they get to talk and express their points of view and their opinions or their feelings. The women in Everybody Wants Some, with one exception, mostly are kind of presented as objects, right? The men want to sleep with them, and it's not to give them pleasure. It's because they want to sleep with them. But... It's all that's not really presented in a degrading way, right? Like, there's a moment where one of the guys sort of says, like, this is college. The girls just have sex with everybody, too. And it's not judgmental. Like, it's just kind of this open free-for-all. And I kind of suspect that college in the 80s was not really like that for everyone. But there's this sort of nostalgic filter over it. I see it in a way as the best possible version of heterosexual masculinity right it's like all these guys hanging out they're very obsessive about their appearance they're clearly very fond of each other they talk about women but mostly not in a not really at all in a degrading way they definitely discuss their appearance but it's not in a way that made me feel uncomfortable at all they're not particularly predatory even though they definitely are kind of out to try to sleep with them and that's so uncommon so many movies about men have that feeling and certainly you would expect a movie of this subject matter that has so many male characters and is about basically frat boys even if not explicitly frat boys to have a kind of fratty mentality and I don't think that this does at all and 
that was what made me feel comfortable and sort of pleasant watching it, even though in a way it wasn't really made for me, I don't think. Like, it's all about men. I didn't feel alienated, which is just a really nice feeling. <laughs> like, that doesn't come along that often. And I kind of was like, oh, yeah, it would be nice if all men were like this. Like, they're I mean, very young and stupid, but you're kind of like all, like, this This is nice. Like, if, you know. <laughs> so that description is making me wonder, have you read the webcomic Check, Please? No. I Are you... Not. Okay, so are you, are you, you're aware of it. So yeah. just for listeners who've not heard of it, this is a very popular webcomic on Tumblr. And it's about a frat house full of hockey players in college. And it's set in the present day, but it sounds like it has a very kind of similar mood with like one fairly significant exception, which is the main character is gay. And it's kind of, it's a very, very slow burning romance between this main character who's a former figure skater in high school and then goes to college and becomes um, becomes an ice hockey player. And he, his love interest is the captain of the hockey team, who's this very high-powered, competitive, slightly neurotic hockey player. But, like, the mood of that is that it's very much soft bro friendship, like, supportiveness. Everyone in the house is really nice to each other. It's, like, a really intensive sports story. But, like, it's very pleasant. And it's also, I mean, it's aimed at women. Yeah. The writer is a woman. The majority of the audience are women. It very much comes from that place. Often when I'm reviewing films, I do tend to make sure to highlight when they've ignored women or when they've unnecessarily made every character a man. The obvious one is like almost every action blockbuster. If you have like a tertiary character, they're almost always a man. And occasionally you'll get like a female FBI agent or something, but it's not particularly well thought out. Whereas there are some films where you can have almost every character be a man and you're like, this is a purposeful artistic choice and it makes sense. And I think this is one of those examples. Yeah, and I think with almost any other director... I, if I had seen the pitch for this movie in sort of a, a cast list, not because of any of these specific actors, but just the general you know, description of the I mean, it very much pictures. sounds like a Zac Efron film. Like a Zac Efron film I would not want to watch. Right. Like, I would have just been like, this is such a bad idea. Like, don't do it. But because I know Linklater's stuff and I know his sensibility, I was like, yep, yeah, I'm in. Like, I know this won't be stupid. And it wasn't. A lot of the characters are quite stupid <laughs> but they're not sort of presented as it's not mean to them the movie isn't mean to anyone it kind of i mean it's, he's into his 50s now and he's looking back on the period when he was in college and you can feel that he's really nostalgic for it and without sort of being overly sentimental there is this very idealistic view of what it's like to be that age. Um, and it wasn't anything like my experience of being that age, but it was just very nice to to visit. And interestingly, getting to the, you made the comment about the main character in that comic being gay, uh, Kyle Buchanan at New York Magazine wrote a pretty interesting piece about this movie being the gayest straight film ever or something to that effect, basically saying that Linklater had kind of accidentally made this film that was really high on homoerotic subtext. Um, you know, the characters are wearing all these sort of ridiculous eighties clothes, really, really tight shirts. Tyler Hecklin has a like crop top at one point, which is really just a wonder to behold an extraordinary outfit choice. There are pictures. I highly recommend seeking them out. But I didn't really feel that way about it at all. I can see how you would have that interpretation or, or get that sense because you do have all these unbelievably attractive athletes 
stuck in this house together and they're talking about sex all the time. But again, it felt to me less like there was this tension between them and more like they are obviously going after all these women. And it is this sort of utopian vision of what, you know, heterosexual male culture is like if you remove the bad parts, right? There's none of this sort of ugliness. It's just bros hanging. (laughs) And it was so nice. Like, it was just really pleasant. And I think Magic Mike XSL has that too, where kind of the point is not the potential, like, sexual tension between the main characters or the main male characters, but instead just this, like, unbelievably chill attitude that they have toward their own sexuality and towards other people's sexuality that obviously doesn't exclude non-heterosexual orientations, but is really interesting and I think appealing in comparison to other movies, especially kind of mainstream American movies, which tend to not have that attitude. Yeah. I mean, Zac Efron movies. Right, exactly. Yeah. Douche like, movies. Yeah, so I really appreciate it on that level. I don't think it'll be for everyone, but I just thought it was such a nice couple of hours. I mean, I am, I'm definitely watching this film when it comes yeah. to the UK in a thousand <laughs> years. Yes, someday. So I think it's actually next month. I think it it's is. Next it's, coming, it's coming out in May, but I mean, I think we have to be realistic here. The whole of the first half of May is blocked out for Captain America. So like, <laughs> the first this two weeks. Yeah, <laughs> there will be nothing else happening. Anywhere, including on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, yeah, listeners, there's going to... So obviously we are definitely going to be doing a Captain America Civil War podcast, possibly even two. There's a real conflict happening here. There's an internal civil war, which is that in the UK, it comes out a week before the US. So we are going to be torn asunder. We are not going to be able to speak about this for a week. And it's going to be freaking torture. I'm going to be off the internet. Yeah. Like, like, going to die. (laughs) But anyway, before we move on to Dazed and Confused, um, I think we do need to take a couple of minutes to talk about Tyler Hecklin, who... Yes, some, please. Yes, we have please. to. We have to mention him. So Tyler Hecklin is... I wouldn't describe him as the star, but he's definitely one of the most popular actors from the TV show Teen Wolf, uh, which definitely has what you describe as a cult following, especially in terms of fanfic. Um, and he plays the broody werewolf. He's basically kind of the angel from Buffy of this show. And his role is limited. He takes his shirt off a lot. He broods a lot. And he is extremely popular with the fans. His character was actually killed off or removed in some way a couple of years ago. But anyway, this is like his first serious feature film. And it's really interesting because like watching Teen Wolf, although he's not bad in it, he's definitely not like a bad performer. He's got like a limited role and it's very much focusing on his waxed chest. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Whereas, you know, this film is just, it's very... I feel kind of very warmly towards him getting this role because while I don't particularly have any reason to believe that he's like an incredible actor, he seems like a very nice person and it's quite unusual for someone who is a handsome teen star with a politely friendly and bland personality to be starring in an indie film by someone like Richard Linklater. And it's clearly kind of this combination of, first of all, he used to be he was briefly a professional baseball player. So like when he auditioned for this for this film, he sent in a tape of him on like on ESPN. <laughs> uh, he was a college baseball college, player. College, college, okay. But like, was on track to become yeah. a professional baseball he was, player. He was a very good baseball player. And then 
you know, had an injury or something and moved into acting. And then, you know, he was cast in this film because he knows how to play baseball and he's like a really chill bro. And he can just get on with all the other cast members who are also chill bros. And I'm glad to hear that he's got this film. And my prediction for his career, Morgan, is that within the next 10 years, I think he will be starring in either an early evening slot or a daytime soap or Christian TV programming <laughs> as a nice man. And I specify, I think it's going to be Christian family based and mums will love him. I think that is... Mark it down. That sounds highly plausible to me. Yes, I would believe that. I have, I have no argument with that whatsoever. Um, yeah, it was, I was really just amused and, and charmed by his presence in this film. He's, he's quite good. All the cast members are great, actually. They did a very good job of casting a bunch of white guys of approximately the same age who all look quite distinct from each other and then styling them in a very distinct way so you can actually tell who is who. But also, they just seem like different people, which was very helpful. Um, I think that probably the standout is Glenn Powell, who was on Scream Queens, I think, although I've never watched that, uh, who plays the kind of most philosophical one, although he's also one of those like college types who, who actually doesn't know anything at all. <laughs> but is clearly smarter than everyone else on the team, but he still doesn't know anything. But uh, yeah, Tyler Hecklin has all this he mostly does physical acting in Teen Wolf by which I mean removes his shirt and has some really terrible dialogue that he delivers not very well and he was quite he was quite good in this movie and I just thought oh I'm so happy for you I feel I feel like we're we're kind of being condescendingly complimenting to our nephew who just got a B after (laughs) having D's for years (laughs) young Tyler's doing very well (laughs) god bless him no, I really do like him, though, and I think he does seem like a genuinely, like, pleasant person, which is not often the case with... Which Linklater seems like as well. That's, like, actors who work with him have a great deal of genuine affection for him, and unlike almost every, like, serious, popular yet artistic director at the moment, he doesn't seem like a monster. He seems like he really nurtures his actors, and he also as in Dazed and Confused. Like, he casts a lot of people who are not particularly well-known or who aren't even professional actors. Which I think works in Dazed and Confused really well because obviously there are a lot of very attractive people, but also a lot of people who kind of just look like kids. Um, and what was interesting about watching it was that it was came out in 1993 and we're so used to teenagers in films being, like, 25 years old. Yeah, like that's just what our our ex- expectation is for a seventeen year old. They're gonna look twenty five, and a bunch of the kids in this movie are not that age at all, and it has a big impact on your experience of it because you really feel like, oh yeah, this was. I mean, if not, if if not my experience specifically of high school was this, but like feeling like an adolescent was kind of this way, and that's what an adolescent looks like and he or she yeah, is. they look like kids. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just much better. And obviously it's not always possible to just clear whatever, but I thought it worked really well. Yeah. Like in Freaks and Geeks where they have like yes. the really obvious age gap. Yeah. So, and- so just to kind of rewind a second, I know that like some listeners may not know Days and Confused. Basically it's just one of these day in the life movies. It's about the final day of high school in this Texas school And it kind of runs with a group of about 15 characters who all have like a roughly equal amount of screen time. 
so they kind of they finish up school and then they the, they're separated into boys and girls and they go through these like bizarre hazing rituals to do with the new seniors like hazing the new freshmen as they join high school and then you know they kind of go to a party at the end and that's that's basically the whole plot of the film not a spoiler it's very much about the experience yeah and it co-stars so one of the main characters is like a younger boy who's like 13 or 14 played by a guy named wiley wiggins who now is like mostly not an actor but then as some of the seniors they have people like parker posey and ben affleck which is like i think <laughs> i think actually we should just get ben affleck out of the way because i have to say we have now having two ben affleck movies in a row what a great two to pick Accidentally. I Accidentally. had no idea yeah. Ben Affleck was in this movie <laughs> and then f- discovered this this week and was like, wow, superb. And then the experience of him in this film was beyond my hopes and dreams. It's stunning. <laughs> He's playing like a weird psycho in both movies who's like obsessed <laughs> with punishment and revenge. Both films, it's just he's just playing the same character from different time periods. Yeah. yeah. You got your Batman and now you've got just... Also, Ben Affleck was, like, really great casting for this because, like, he's meant to be... He's a senior who got held back a year, so he's, like, a year older than the other seniors. And he is the character who really does look like an adult. Like, he looks like a TV teenager, and he does look about 22 or 23. And he's obviously, like, really tall and handsome and square-jawed. And he's a douchebag, and all of the other characters acknowledge that he's a douchebag in that way you have when it's, like, a small community and you kind of have to tolerate someone who's awful. But, like, he's chasing after freshman kids who are children so he can like beat them with a paddle as part of the hazing ritual and that's his whole role yeah his whole role is him being like a 19 year old who's obsessed with paddling 14 year olds and you just think like wow ben affleck's life has taken some strange turns (laughs) (laughs) okay he's quite good at it like he's very good i think he's excellent certainly one of the best films he's been in which is not really a high bar, but um, it was just not what I was expecting to be spending my night watching, let's put it that way. It really makes me want to see him do more movies where he has kind of this impotent rage, because when he's doing the authentic rage of Batman, it's just like, this is a bad role, and he's not being treated fairly by being made to do this bad role, even though obviously he bought into it and decided to do the film. But like when you have him in this, or like even... Gone Girl. Gone, Gone Girl, Gone Girl, and, and Ke- yeah. even the Kevin Smith movie um, where he plays an angel, like he and Matt Damon are both angels, Gone and he's Gone. they're like the yeah they're the impotent rage angels, and it's like yeah, it's a good <laughs> Ben Affleck role. Give him more of these and less of the ones <laughs> where he's sincere and heroic. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't uh, he doesn't do that so well. It, it doesn't play. <laughs> you just don't buy it. I mean, uh, I think one could buy it if there was a film that was sincere enough, but. I feel like he's not going to sign up for many sincere film roles. And you have to have someone who knows how to make a good film in order to do it. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Whereas this, you know, very good casting. And um, Morgan and I also last night read um, an oral history of this film because, of course, there's an oral history. It's a cult film with a very big cast. And it was really it was really nice to hear about Ben Affleck because, you know, people were saying, you know, he was like one of the sweetest people on the set. He was really nice. He was a good person to be around. Well, because this was four years before Good Will Hunting. Yeah. So he re- and then this movie also was a cult hit. It did not make much money. So it's not like after it came out, people would have known who he was. I mean, as as we know, Good Will Hunting was the moment when everyone found out who he and Matt Damon were. So 
he was a nobody and there would have been no reason for him to be acting like a diva on that set. So it kind of makes sense that he would have been, would have been more pleasant. And, uh, I don't know Ben Affleck, so I shouldn't make any, any yeah, we're, maybe we're being but... cruel to him because we've, are, we've been, we've been, you know, we've been scarred by Bad <laughs> <laughs> It does seem like times have changed though. I think that's a, a fair general comment to make about him. Whereas the other, the other kind of surprising breakout star of this, obviously there's a lot of small, you know, Renee Zellweger has like a tiny cameo. Uh, Mila Jovovich is in it. I didn't see her. I mean, oh, sure she's, I she's the girlfriend with the very high voice. Yeah, I figured that out, but I didn't notice her at all watching. Okay. <laughs> I noticed yeah. her and I was like, is that Renee Zellweger? But like, I couldn't properly recognize her because her teeth have changed. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, the, uh, the other kind of really big breakout role from this is obviously Matthew McConaughey, who... Yeah. In this film, debuted his catchphrase of "All right, all right, all right." <laughs> <laughs> oh, amazing! So amazing. Yeah, I so I knew the kind of story of that and the fact this was his first film role at all. Like they, the casting yeah, he wasn't even an actor before it. Yeah, like found him in a bar or something, like a University of Texas bar, where he he was like went to UT planning to be a lawyer, if I'm remembering. I think he was studying film. So like he was studying film and he, someone pointed out that this guy was a producer. So he went to talk to him and wound up being cast. I'm pretty sure he went planning to do law and then maybe changed his mind or something. But um, I think he'd been in like one commercial and then he went up and talked to this producer and he wound up getting cast in this movie. And the role was initially going to be really small and he wound up being so great that they were just like more. Um, and it sounds like the screenplay definitely was pretty in flux throughout the shooting of the film. But what I found so interesting watching him, and this is obviously, you know, decades later where we all know what happened to Matthew McConaughey and who he is now, like, especially post McConaissance, right? Like there's just so many layers of watching this performance that like, he'd never been in a movie before. He said, like, after having done it, that he was really nervous. He is such a movie star. Like, you can just tell. And again, this is with hindsight. Like, he just has this presence of, like, movie star presence that, like, Ben Affleck does not have when you are watching him. Like, we yeah, know he feels like he feels like a really great character actor, but with Matthew McConaughey. Yeah. And also, like, it's it's kind of a triumph of, like, branding. Because when you watch this film... You could, if you didn't know anything about what was happening behind the scenes, you can really imagine that, like, he is playing himself or he already has this catchphrase as part of himself. But, like, he, from what he says, anyway, it sounds like the kind of the all right, all right, all right thing. He kind of made it for that role and it just became part of his presence. And, like, later films, you know, coincidentally, he's kind of merged into, like, this character in real life. Um, it's just it's just fascinating to see this film now for the first time after he's gone through this huge like transformation from being a rom-com star to these huge mainstream really serious roles and all while remaining like on brand as Matthew McConaughey like you know it's him always. Yeah, and just like his presence in the room like there's one scene where they kind of walk in somewhere like it it's it's not exactly a billiards place but there are pool tables it's, I mean yeah to track him into the room and he's sort of looking around in a kind of calculating way, but he just has so much physical presence 
And that's both an acting thing and a movie star thing. I think something people talk about a lot now is kind of the difference between actors and movie stars and that some people are more one or more the other and some people are both. So The Rock. The Rock is a movie star. Exactly. Daniel Day-Lewis is an actor. And I think McConaughey really has both, which is amazing because 10 years ago, if you had said that, I would have been like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, okay. Um, But you can sort of see both in that performance, at least now that we know kind of what he wound up doing. Um, And he's just fun. Like he's, he's really enjoyable. Um, He has an amazing hairdo. It's sort of blonde. I was so curious like, to know whether, his, <laughs> like, is he naturally blonde? Was he naturally blonde at that point? No. In his okay, no, that's <laughs> definitely not what he looks like. <laughs> but it was, but it was, it was glorious to behold. Are you aware that he actually brought that particular role back in recent years? Yes. He starred in a music video as that character, <laughs> and I would love to know the story behind how they managed to get him post reconnaissance to star in a music video for like not particularly exciting song as that character in costume with as always a couple of much younger women in tow. I get the sense that Matthew McConaughey does whatever he wants. Oh yeah. And I mean, he clearly has a very healthy relationship with this film and this role. Yeah. But I mean, in this, like, Obviously, his career recently has been unbelievably intelligently thought out, right? Because he was doing all those stupid rom-coms and whatever for quite some time and then made an abrupt shift to doing a series of artsy films. And then when he even did like Interstellar, which is a big, you know, budget sci-fi Christopher Nolan movie. But I also get the sense that even though he started taking his work much more seriously, I get the idea that he probably doesn't take himself very seriously at all. The perfect combination. Right. Exactly. And so someone probably pitched that to him and he was like, yeah, man, that's the correct attitude. But uh, yeah, I think I I didn't know a huge amount about this movie except the general pitch. And I found I really liked it. I found it really, really interesting to watch. I realized while watching it how many sort of teen movies I have seen, which I hadn't. Like, obviously, I know that this is a genre, and if you had asked me to list them off, I would have been able to do it. But it wasn't until I was watching this that all the kind of, like, tropes and just visuals and, like, feelings that were evoked, I was like, oh, yeah, I've seen so many of these. Like, Fast Times at Ridgemont High came out pretty pretty near this one. Obviously, all the John Hughes movies, American Graffiti, and then later stuff like Wet Hot American Summer and Freaks and Geeks, I think, probably definitely... We're taking stuff from this film and then everybody wants some, there are direct references to things and all this, that's those sort of interconnections I found really interesting. Some of them are more direct than others, but that kind of just feeling of like American suburbia and the romance and misery of American suburbia that gets sort of depicted in these movies with varying percentages of each of those things. I found that really interesting as someone who, I obviously am not from America. I grew up in a city in Scotland, so I did not have like this kind of isolated upbringing. And I think the first time I ever experienced American suburbia was probably when I went to go visit Morgan. <laughs> uh, and I was like, what is this fresh hell? Um, but I think there's, there's quite a lot of things that become extremely popular tropes in Hollywood films that are very kind of US-centric. And I'm like, this is... 
this is bad and it's not like a valid choice. And I think that suburban like teen movies is not one of those things because it's such a huge like shared experience that doesn't really have an outlet aside from this kind of teen movie, which is always about sort of being miserable and isolated and like trying to keep busy and not having anything to do. And like, obviously Days and Confused is like a far more kind of artistic, naturalistic film than like John Hughes movies or whatever. But it clearly like resonates with a huge number of people in the US. And I definitely got like a lot out of it. I think possibly like I might even have identified with parts of it more than Morgan did. Cause you know, Morgan was saying you find it very dark. And I was like, <laughs> I found the hazing stuff really fucked up, which it is. And the film is clearly kind of presenting it as that because it was made 20 years after the setting, even though that obviously carries on now. But when I was watching, I was kind of like, yeah, this is pretty much similar thematically to my teen experience. I think the part of the reason I it felt dark to me was that I had just seen Everybody Wants Some, which is possibly the least dark movie I've ever seen in my <laughs> life. And um, A.O. Scott's review said something about this. Um, it was a really good review. We'll link to it. That there's just this immensely positive and benign feeling to that movie. Whereas there's something about Days and Confused that is a little more insidious. And so McConaughey's character, Wooderson, is an adult who basically hangs around with these teenagers because he likes to sleep with teenage girls. And so is scoping them out, which is quite explicitly creepy. And he's oh, yeah. a very, yeah, like he's a very enjoyable character. He's quite funny. Like you're meant to watch it and enjoy watching him, but you're also definitely meant to be like, hmm, that's fucked up. <laughs> like it's, it, it's not, you know, like that's intentional, I think in the text, but there's a bunch of stuff in this movie that had no bearing on what my adolescence was like at all. And then there was other stuff that definitely did make me think about, you know, growing up in suburbia, um, I had the most boring adolescence imaginable. But even within the confines of that boring adolescence, the kind of feeling of just like driving around at night in suburbia is pretty universal to people who grew up in the suburbs, I think. And the thing that really made me lose it was this, there's a really brief scene in a sort of like middle school, like social function thing where there are all these like 13 year olds hanging out and like awkwardly dancing and making out. And we had the teen center in Sudbury, Massachusetts, where I grew up, <laughs> where your parents dropped you off and like no one was really making out. Like it really was just people sitting around like a jukebox or like awkwardly dancing, but it was just the worst thing. <laughs> and when they brought up to that, I was like, it's the teen center. Like it's that thing um because there was no, there was nothing to do like there was nowhere for anyone to go but what it kind of felt to me like what he was sort of depicting was almost this like weird hell right so the hazing rituals are these kind of like weird fucked up sexual things so the girls have to go through like it's hard, i don't even know like want to get into the details but it's it's quite degrading and like unpleasant um the boys ones was very much about like, I mean, it was basically getting beat up, but it was like weird kind of faintly sexualized, getting physically like humiliated in front of your friends. Whereas the girls ones involved a combination of like sisterly bonding and verbal abuse. And I was like, interesting gendered choices here. And it was very much like a thing that actually happened because Richard Linkley yeah. like, based this on his own life and the hazing rituals when he grew up in Texas. And then also, you know, some of the kids are having these sort of like burgeoning romances that are quite sweet and not creepy at all but 
there was this, almost this element of like, hmm, this seems unpleasant and like bad. And near the end of the film, the the sort of like big philosophical moment is basically one of the characters saying like, you know, if I look back and 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 say that these were the best four years of my life, like shoot me, like that would be just totally miserable. Like oh my god, and one of the other characters basically says, I hope that we had like made the best of this time, right? And had the best possible time that we could. And he's kind of like, yeah. And I think that's really what the movie is trying to get at. That Like there's so much about this that is so miserable and terrible, but you have to try to find like something about it that is okay. <laughs> like you can find some element that, you know, with your friends or whatever it is that, you can sort of glean something out of this that is positive, which I think is a pretty accurate description of adolescence. In yeah, that. I found it. I found it like incredibly yeah. realistic in terms of like tone and like the attitude and the way that the characters were like expressing their attitude towards finishing middle school or finishing high school. And I think maybe that's kind of where our like personalities diverge because you're like kind of like this is this really dark, depressing thing, and I'm like <laughs> maybe it is, but it's that sort of like the process of being a teenager like if you are a teenager that like exists in the world of western high schools this is it obviously that's true i mean that's just the nature of of growing up but um i think it you haven't seen boyhood but i think there's kind of an interesting contrast there too where the the sort of tone of that without being overly um sentimental or at all nostalgic because that takes place in the Sort of present day is much more kind of gentle and just observational to me. Whereas this seemed to be focusing more on bad stuff that can happen. Right? And I don't mean to make it sound like all of this terrible stuff is happening in this movie because it's a comedy. Um, and it isn't, like full of like horrible predators. Um, but there did seem to be this sort of undercurrent of him looking at this and being like, mm, 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 mm. whereas if you jump 20 years, 20 plus years into the future and he's looking back at college and it is this like completely idyllic picture of what that period of his life was like. Right. And it's done in an intelligent way. I think it's not like he's forgotten the bad stuff. I think it's just that he's deliberately choosing to not put it in, which feels interesting to me. I don't think it makes for a better or a worse movie. It's just a different approach. The comedy, I think, in Days and Confused is a little broader, uh, which led to some instances of, of some pretty funny, funny stuff. Um, I don't know what moments really stuck out to you, but there's a, there's a bit near the end where one of the kind of stoner characters is going on at length about how George Washington was a secret hot <laughs> partner. And I was sitting like alone in my apartment on my couch at like midnight, just like laughing my ass off. Like I was beside myself. Oh my God. There's so much just of like peak realism. Amazing. <laughs> oh man. Well, and that's what he's so good at. I think. And the same is true in, in everybody wants some, but I think in his movies in general, it's just like nailing down these exact types of people. Right. So like the characters in this film are all of these kind of types that you knew in high school and you're like, yes, that kid but, existed. But at the like, same time, they're not tropey in the same way that like right. most movies are. Because I mean, Mean Girls is obviously the kind of the point where that peaked, but it's like you have these very specific cliques 
in teen movies where like here's the nerds and here's the stoners and like in this they had like the more realistic version of that where you know you do have the characters who are the stoners and who are on the football team but like they end up at the same party at the end and also you get a really really clear idea of each of their personalities so the ones that i found very interesting were the kind of main freshman boy who's played by the kind of actor slash non-actor wiley wiggins and his older sister Mm -hmm. who are both portrayed essentially really sweethearted like nice people in this system that's like really quite screwy and if you have like a I guess like a bad personality you can end up like the Ben Affleck character but like that was just (laughs) such an interesting yeah it was such an interesting kind of point of characterization to have them be siblings because I was immediately like I bet they've had like some kind of parental guidance or some home life where they've decided to support each other whereas you have other characters who are in exactly the same boat and they turn into huge assholes or they're like, I need to avoid this because, and then they become a stoner or whatever. Yes. Um, that, that seemed to be the, 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 so it was, it was, yeah, it was very individual rather than like archetypes. Yeah. And the parents basically do not make an appearance almost at all. Which is what you want from a teen movie. Because that's like, I mean, parents are not a thing. No. (laughs) Parents don't exist. Yeah. If you're like 15, you're like, I'm so (laughs) self-absorbed. My parents are not people. (laughs) They only exist to thwart my plans. Oh my god. Which is also so funny to kind of watch after having seen Boyhood, which obviously he made, again, you know, well, started to make, I guess. It came out 20 years-ish later, but he was starting much earlier, um, where the parents play such a huge, pivotal role. Which, of course, Um, it's a film for the parents. There definitely was sort of reactions from people who were almost the exact same age as that kid watching it who were just like, oh. and I remember watching it uh, with my best friend from high school and we were, were you know older than that kid, but there was enough stuff that we had lived through that we were just like, oh my God. <laughs> the, uh, the older sister at one point has the exact same hair dye that my friend had in, in high school. It's like dark red. That's good research. Hair dye. Yeah. And we were like, well it wasn't research it was like what was happening yeah well no but that's still research though because it's like like later you know he speaks to his actors he spends like weeks and weeks rehearsing with them and they you know it's not improv but they change the lines themselves and they give input into how their characters would behave so i think both of us like before recording we both read this really interesting profile of him which we'll link in the show notes where he's kind of they hear stuff about boyhood where he asked uh, teenagers who were the same age as the main actor to supply music and like small personal yeah. essays explaining why that music was important because he knew that he couldn't supply the music in the same way that he could for Dazed and Confused. Yeah, I love that detail. And the music in Boyhood is so like me watching it there. It was it was right. Like it was all the sort of stuff that I remembered from those years. The first like the opening of that movie, they play yellow <laughs> and it's just like, <laughs> yes, like, that is what is evoked for me from like 12 years ago is like, that is the right but song. You see, that's how I kind of feel about um, Skins, the British version of Skins, not the terrible American remake. Yes. Because <laughs> the first two seasons of Skins, the first generation came out when I was the same age. So my okay. peers and I were all simultaneously all watching Skins and we were all basically having the same life that was in Skins. Yeah. So like, although obviously that show is very intense, you know, you'll have like a pregnancy scare, a drug scare and like a huge anorexia meltdown in like the space of one episode. You know, we'd be <laughs> having that stuff, but it would be it would be over the course of like six months. Yeah. So it was just like watching this really kind of identifiable, hyper intensified, like slightly cooler version of your own life, which of course as a teenager, you're like, that's exactly what I want to hear. Well, I would love to know like how teenagers felt about Days and Confused when it came out. Boyhood 
I think you could watch as like an 18 year old going to college and really feel a lot about it. But as you said, it definitely is made for like grown up people. Whereas this film, it's not not made for adults. Like I watched it and totally enjoyed it and kind of was just like, man, high school. Whereas like Fast Times at Ridgemont High very much feels like it's made for teenagers. And this sort of felt like it existed a little bit in between to me. Um, and the, I feel like there's just the experience of watching that at like 17 would be so different from watching it now. Like my sort of like, this was so dark. <laughs> I, was I mean, I can, I can very, I can very easily imagine that like the kind of response to that from teenagers, like especially in 1993 or whatever would have been split quite easily down the middle between people who are just like, that is incredibly dull and bored. Nothing happens in this film. And people yeah. who are like, this is spoken to me. And then like memorize every line. <laughs> yes. I mean, it was like, I think it said in the, I think it was in the oral history that there were like pockets of America or towns or whatever, where there were like midnight screenings for like a year, just went on and on and on. And you know, the people at those midnight screenings are not 30. So oh yeah, God. And it, yeah, it is, and it, you know, it kind of, it folds back into the whole, like if you're living in an isolated community, like in the suburbs or in a small town and there's nothing else to do. It feels strangely um, undated also to me. Like, yeah, definitely. It, I, I absolutely agree. Which I think is part of the virtue of setting it 20, 20-ish years previously because the costumes obviously are deliberately made to look, period. Um, and so it already has its kind of specific thing and it in certain ways, obviously, is of of another time. I think the most obvious thing, actually, is that like people's voices change so much as time passes that you can really tell with some of the actors that like that's not how people talk anymore. Like the eighties and nineties were like the, the our voices have have modulated, um, but so much of it feels very current still, um, which was was really neat to watch. Uh, I just, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was, was great. Um, I mean, in that regard, it was really interesting to compare to Wet Hot American Summer, which is a very yeah. similar premise, which also I think we both strongly recommend as well as yes. the kind of the sequel <laughs> series that was made for Netflix recently. And that's, um, I mean, that's a comedy. It's far more of like a broad comedy movie, which is about a group of teenagers who are, um, they're camp counselors at like a small summer camp. And it's it's the same situation where it's made in like 2001, 2002, and it's set in the 70s. And it stars this cast of people who at the time were not famous at all, like Paul Rudd and Amy Poehler. And then now they're like, most of them are huge stars. And then Netflix released a series like a few months ago, which was kind of a, a prequel starring the same actors, now 40 is like 50. <laughs> um, but I feel like that, although Wet Hot American Summer is incredible and I adore it, I feel like that feels a great deal more pastiche on purpose. Like it's far, oh, yeah. it definitely I mean, doesn't feel like timeless or... <laughs> no, I mean, that's it's, that's its glory. Like, is that it's such a weird, just like artifact of whatever. And, and also was in many ways ahead of its time comedically. Like when oh, that yeah. came out, everyone was like, what the fuck is going? Like, what is this? Its reviews were terrible. Like if you look at its Rotten Tomatoes rating, it's like got some abysmally low count. Like it got terror, it got panned. Yeah. And it became a cult film for a good reason. Cause it's just brilliant. But uh, 
it doesn't feel like it's of now either. No. It just feels, I don't know what it feels like. It just feels like it's from a different world. Like it just came in <laughs> and it exists somehow. I think it's not like the presence of the actors like Paul Rudd and everyone, I think do place it in the 90s. Like I've watched that and I think this is a 90s film, whereas like Linklater is such a more, like he's such a more impressive filmmaker that you watch his film and you're just like, you kind of forget, apart from yeah. Matthew McConaughey, you forget that it's like Millie over bitch or whatever. Yeah. And then our man, Ben. <laughs> and of course, our man. That actually was almost more distracting to me, even though I was really paying attention to McConaughey because I, I love him, which again, if you had told me that 10 years ago, I would have been concerned for myself. Like, he obviously looks much older now, but somehow, like, and there, he and Affleck are around the same age, but he looks like an adult already, which is appropriate because he's playing. Affleck looks like an adult. But he looks like an adult, but he also looks like a child at the same time. It's very hard to describe. Like, he just looks immature. <laughs> I, guess, I guess it's more that he looks so different than he does now. And McConaughey's whole, like, aura, even if his face is craggier, is basically the same. Whereas Batfleck <laughs> has gone through so many permutations of himself. I feel like we've been so unnecessarily mean to this poor man. And he's going through a difficult time in his life. And we have dedicated so much airtime to him. And yet... <laughs> I am from Boston and grew He's your up... child. Well, we grew up like, we're so off topic and it's fine. We grew up like it was basically just like legally you had to love him and Matt Damon. I have seen Goodwill Hunting like I can't even tell you how many times, a million times. It was a requirement that you love both of them. So for a long time I did, and I still love Matt Damon. And then it sort of became apparent slowly over time that Ben Affleck was probably an asshole. And then he just sort of kept going in that direction. And it was like, oh, no. So it feels a little personal to me when, <laughs> he, when he does things. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, dear. Yeah, it's it's been an interesting time recently for the the citizens of the Boston area. <laughs> so I think that kind of wraps it up for our teen movie college movie duo this week. For show notes and further info about the podcast, please check out our website overinvestedpodcast.com or find us on Twitter at overinvestedpod. Next week, we'll be discussing Marvel's Black Panther, a topic in which I'm personally very overinvested. Uh, the first issue of the new Black Panther comic comes out on April 6th, um, so you can kind of check that out before the episode if you like. Um, and Marvel's promoting this one in a really big way because it's written by National Book Award winner Tanahasi Coates, who's a really interesting um, choice of writer for this one. And also because they're launching a Black Panther movie franchise soon off the back of Captain America Civil War. Now, I know a lot of people aren't necessarily familiar with Black Panther as a character, so next week's episode is going to be a combination of me introducing him and kind of making the case for why he's so exciting and unique. And then Morgan and I are going to discuss the new comic. So please join us next Monday for that. Um, and in the meantime, if you enjoyed the episode, please remember to rate us on iTunes because that's the main way new listeners can find out about the show. See you next week. Bye.